Well, good morning. Good to see all your faces this morning. Why don't we go ahead and have a word of prayer before we dive into the Word of God and to some a very important scripture text here. So why don't we go ahead and pray. Father, we are thankful for your Word. We are thankful for this place of worship. And Lord, we ask in this moment, on this Sunday, that Lord, you would not only let your word resound in the walls of these church, but Lord, let it reverberate in our hearts. And so, Lord, I ask that we would be receptive to the word that you have for us, and that would, we would take these warnings very seriously about judgment, but that, Lord, we would cling to Christ the most and even more in this time, knowing that, Lord, he is our deliverer. He's your Son, whom you sent to us. And so, again, we thank you for this time, and we ask you to bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. This morning, we'll continue our series in the book of Isaiah. And so we're in Isaiah chapter 13, if you would like to turn there at this moment. And Isaiah 13 is... A really fascinating chapter. It's almost like that that when I started to read it, I started to think of a a situation where have you ever had a couple friends that maybe you you met them a little bit long and they had already known each other, and maybe on some areas they just completely disagreed. They had these weird conflicts and they had these weird arguments, and it just seems like what 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 happened? And you learn maybe from a a third friend or something like that, oh, they had a history. This happened and this happened. They had a falling out many years ago and their relationship has kind of never been the same. Well, in the same way, we come to a, a kingdom in this chapter of Isaiah. We're introduced to a kingdom called Babylon. And in the same breath with which we're introduced to this kingdom, we're Almost, we're almost being told that, oh, there's a history here. And in the same breath that we, we're kind of being acquainted with this kingdom, we are also learning of its judgment. And we realize there is actually a long and storied history of Babylon. And there's a long and storied history of the relationship that God has with the nation of Babylon. So, this right here in Isaiah chapter 13 is an oracle against Babylon, concerning Babylon, and it's interesting because this is, as I've said, this is kind of the first we've heard of it in a little bit, at, at length. We've heard of other nations so far in our study in Isaiah. We've heard of Syria. We've heard of, you know, that's a split nation, the split uh, people of God, Israel and Judah. We, we've heard of Assyria. So we've, we've seen these nations, and yet all of a sudden our focus turns to the nation of Babylon. And it's interesting because it hasn't really come up as a threat so far, and yet God has an important word about this nation, which it went, in Isaiah's time was a world power. This historical city was of huge, crucial significance to God. And if, a way you might want to remember it is if, if Rome, Rome is often called the eternal city, you know, that everything, you know, we're kind of revolves around Rome. That's what people say. Well, think of Babylon as the infernal city. 
It's the city that God has a serious beef with. And we might think, what, what is going on between God and Babylon? But, but God really does have a problem with them. And we'll see and we'll flesh this out in this text today. And so why don't we go ahead and dive into the text. Dive into Isaiah chapter 13, um, starting in verse 1. We see an oracle or a, a word of prophecy, concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. And it starts, On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. And so just akin to the last chapter of Isaiah chapter 12, we, we see a banner in that case, and we learned that the banner was kind of like Christ. God lifting Christ up to the world as the Savior of the world. But we see a different kind of banner. We see a different kind of signal raising up right here. And it seems as though it's a muster of armies. If you'll continue on in verse 3, it says, I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. And we see that God is conscripting an army right here. He's mustering and he's commanding an army and bringing them into these gates. And they are almost like God's privileged guests. And he says, enter through the gates of the nobles because these men are set apart, not for necessarily the worship of God or anything like that, but, but they're set apart for the sole purpose of God's anger. They are an army that God is intentionally mustering for the sole purpose of executing God's wrath. And he calls them my proudly exalting ones. They are specialists in judgment, this nation, this army that God is mustering against Babylon. Another translation of the proudly exalting ones is men men and warriors for my exasperation. They are an army that God is building up who kind of share the same vision of wrath that God has, and God is using them to execute His wrath. God is using this army personally invested in this way that shares His exasperation that's going to come against this nation of Babylon. And so we read on in verse 4, the, the sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. We, we have the banner first, which is a visual cue, and then all of a sudden we hear the sound. And it's an exclamation. They're, they're coming even closer. And it's almost like you can hear the drum beats. You can hear the, the hoof beats of the horses. And so the sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. You can hear them coming. And the Lord, is, the Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. Verse 5, they come from a distant land. And what's their mission? They come from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of His indignation to destroy the whole land. So God is preparing destruction. In a parallel passage in, in Jeremiah chapter 50, it describes it in this way that God is going to an, His armory. God is going to His arsenal and flinging it open and taking out the weapons of His wrath to judge the nation of Babylon. 
And so we see in these few verses that our, our first point today is that God's judgment here is prepared and it's calculated. It's not just something that, you know, God, God is judging for no reason. A lot of people think that, that, that the God of the Old Testament is very judgy, you know, very just uh, has a kind of chip on his shoulder all the time. But no, it's a very calculated and planned judgment. And we'll see why in a little bit. But just know that God's judgment is prepared and calculated. And yet, even though it's prepared and calculated, it comes upon them very quickly. And it very comes upon them very swiftly. As in verses, we'll see in verse 6, look, wail... We're called to wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor, and they will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. So Isaiah's oracle brings us into direct confrontation with this bad news. We're talking about Babylon, and all of a sudden, the judgment of God is at their very gates. And it's coming to them at a point of embarrassment. We see that their faces are aflame. It's almost like their faces are red because all of a sudden, they, you, you hear about it a little bit of distance off. You hear about the banner, and then you hear the hoofbeats. And all of a sudden, it's there. It's at your gates, and you are almost sick with the expectation of this judgment. It may be an obvious point, but our normal reaction to kind of the words of judgment is usually kind of embarrassment, right? And it's more flight than, than fight, if you will. When judgment comes upon us, or when we think about, oh gosh, like it, the, the aspect of something like judgment it, it makes us kind of cringe a little bit. And if you look out in, in the marketplace today and what, what companies do to attract customers, they go out of their way to say that this is not judgment. We're not judging you, if you will. If you think about something like the Coca-Cola commercials that you may have seen, the whole premise of those commercials is, you know, I drink Coke with this, I drink Coke with that. And it's no matter what you eat, you know, if you're drinking Coke, you can drink Coke with anything, you know, just as long as you drink Coke. I guess that's the point of the commercial. I received a flyer in the mail this week about a gym, and the gym calls itself a non-judgment zone. <laughs> this is a non-judgment. We're not going to judge you. It's January. It's late January. You know, you can still come in. That, that's the whole entire appeal. If you come to us, we won't judge you. And I guess for good reason. Because judgment, as we see right here in verses 6-8, through eight, it's not a good motivator. It melts people's hearts. It doesn't say, people don't react, oh, I better do a better job, or you know, I, I, maybe I'll be a better person. No, it absolutely melts people's hearts. It brings terror into their lives. Impending doom is not a good motivator to be a good person. And so what can a person do on Judgment Day, what can a person do when huge, this huge day of reckoning is coming for them? Because Isaiah is about to describe to us what Judgment Day for Babylon looks like, and there is no escape, and it's not pretty. If you'll read with me in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 16, we'll read this Behold, the day of the Lord comes. 
It is cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. We haven't even finished the chapter, and yet we have two positive remarks that God is not there to, you know, maybe slap them on the wrist a little bit. No, God is there to destroy them. There's, it's black, completely black and white. There's no misunderstanding about it. In verse 10, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. Judgment day is not a pretty sight. It is absolutely terrifying. And this is just an absolutely ugly picture of this judgment that is coming upon them. Look at what's a few aspects of this judgment. We see the disordering and the bleakness of the created world resulting in unusual kind of darkness. We see pride and arrogance being singled out and absolutely leveled. It's crushed into powder. We see the land itself being shaken And tumultuous, there's no place to stand. It's an untenable inhabitation. And people themselves are personally attacked and assaulted. This is what judgment is. And we think this is literally cruel and unusual. (laughs) This is literally cruel and unusual judgment. And yet, we have to remember that God, when He judges, He judges from a position of perfect righteousness, and holiness. And the second point for us today is that God's judgment is an extension of His righteousness. This judgment day is cruel and unusual, as I've said, but it's unusual, and that's a, that's a good thing, if you will. Because God is not acting out of a knee-jerk reaction. We, we, we learn that God had calculated and had prepared this judgment. And God waited, and God has mercy against a nation, But when God judges, He judges swiftly and He judges quickly. Psalm 7, verse 11 says this to us for our instruction that God is a righteous judge and He is a God who feels indignation every day. And so from that psalm, we see two truths that God is a righteous judge and He judges from a place of complete patience, of complete, you know, disinterest if you will, like a judge who's not personally invested in a case that he's judging. And so, God's judging from a place of holiness, but even though he's angry with the righteous, the, the unrighteous, he's angry with the wicked every day, he doesn't act every day out of that judgment. And though God's mercies are rich every day, and though God's patience is there every day, God sets aside a single day for judgment. 
God sets aside a limited time for judgment. So we should consider that even as we see the ugliness of God's great punishment that's coming upon Babylon. But what else should we know about this type of judgment that is coming against Babylon, against this foreign nation? Because starting in chapter 13 of Isaiah, we see all these pronunciations of judgment and different kind of prophecies against foreign nations. And so how should we approach this as students of the Scripture and Christians even today in our contemporary age where judgment maybe isn't as talked about, even maybe in churches? Well, for the nation of Babylon, this this wicked kingdom, God's judgment is a means of the deliverance of God's people. And that's our third point today, is that God's judgment is a means of deliverance. Isaiah is picturing a time of Babylon's destruction. And chapter 14 will tell us a little bit more about this, but this judgment upon Babylon, and I feel like I've said the word judgment so many times, haven't I? Judgment, judgment. He's doing this, he's bringing this upon them to release his people out of captivity. Isaiah's being kind of born into this vision in in the future, if you will, because Babylon is going to become not only a world power, but the world power in the future. And there'll be a future time when Babylon will hold God's people captive. And we'll learn about that in, in other books of the Bible, like the book of Daniel. But we, all, we see that a little bit described in Jeremiah chapter 50, a chapter I've already referenced, but in verses 33 through 34, we see this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The people of Israel are oppressed, and the people of Judah with them. All who took them captive have held them fast. They refuse to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is His name. He will surely plead their cause, that He may give rest to the earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. We know, well, we should know by now from studying Isaiah this much, that God's people were unfaithful to Him. They were worshiping other idols. Their hearts were divided. And so God brings them into a time of exile. He brings them into a time of punishment. But when that punishment is over, God turns around and punishes the enemies of His people who had been punishing His people. And so even though there's a punishment coming upon, you know, the the Jewish people, that's a finite time. That's a limited time. The punishment that God brings upon God's enemies is massive, it's complete, and it's full. So God punishes His enemies to deliver His people. And that's what we should recognize as we work through this chapter, as we work through the ugliness and the terror of it, that God is bringing a punishment upon His enemies. Nevertheless, we should also note that there's something else going on here. As we, as we mentioned at the beginning of the message, there's, there's kind of a history, if you will. And we think we've just met Babylon in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has just introduced us to this friend, and he's like, by the way, they're going to be judged completely, totally, and it's going to look like this. It's terrifying. And we think, where did that come from? What kind of history does God have with this nation of with this kingdom, if you will, of Babylon. And we should understand that there is something bigger and more significant happening here when we're looking at this judgment. 
God is describing in this chapter a sort of worldwide universal judgment that we only get a hint of in the nation of Babylon. And yet, it's for our instruction to know that God will eventually judge the whole world and we get a little example, we get a little taste of this in Babylon's judgment. For instance, we can look at verse 10 and we see the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The the sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. This is a picture, and it's a recurring theme of God's total end-of-the-world judgment. In Joel chapter 2, verse 31, Joel, um, the prophet, only has really three chapters to contribute to our scriptures, and they're all, you know, significantly about judgment. He says in 2, verse 31, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before that that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So we have this confirmation that God will judge the world, but we also have this assurance in Joel that there will be an opportunity and a call for people to repent on the last day. And so we should understand that as we look at Babylon, we think, man, they're getting like a really raw deal where God is using them as an example of the judgment he's bringing upon the world. The commentator um, Jan Ritterboss says, judgment over Babylon runs together with the last judgment over all nations. In essence, they are one, with the one being the type and the beginning of the other. Basically what he's saying, and what's happening right here, is that in Scripture... Babylon becomes a deep example of sin and a deep example and a type of eventual judgment. And it actually goes even further back before Isaiah to Genesis with the the very similarly named nation of Babel. Remember what happened in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel? What was going on with that was that they were making God, you know, lets them out. And how do they react? The, how does the world react to um, God's giving them life and giving them this place? They all of a sudden create a monument to themselves. And it's the same type and the same spirit of arrogance that God judged them when he scattered them and divided their, na- divided their languages and scattered them all over the world to stop the building of that temple, that monument to themselves and their own pride. That's the same kind of sin and judgment that we see in Babylon. And it will be the final sin and judgment that we see on the entire world. If we look at the last chapter of the Bible, we see in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, that the great world power of that day in the last days will be characterized by pride, by wickedness, by the oppression and suppression of the Word of God. And so we are told that this nation, this kingdom, is called Babylon. It's simply named Babylon. And we see that Babylon here is not only fallen, but it's fallen, fallen. Revelation 14.8 says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And so Babylon (laughs) becomes this paradigm of how God absolutely hates sin. 
if you will, become symbolic of a nation that absolutely hates God. And so, this is perpetuated by pride and arrogance and the suppression of God's truth. And we see what Babylon has done by the book of Revelation in verse 14, that, that it's making the entire world drunk with its wine. Instead of, you know, serving them, you know, the, the fresh water of life, of eternal life, it's giving them drunkenness with sin and, and arrogance and pride and different kinds of even doctrinal uh, uh, mistakes. It's suppressing the truth of God. And we see in the end that this whole world will be implicated in this conspiracy against God. That's why uh, Martin Luther, one of his books was titled The Babylonian Captivity, and he was referring to how the world, and specifically the Roman Catholic Church, if we're being specific in his time, was oppressing the gospel, the good gospel, and the truth of God. He called that a Babylonian captivity. And so as we talk about Babylon, we're talking more um, we're talking over and above its physical location, its, its historical time. When we talk about Babylon, when God thinks about Babylon, He thinks about pride and arrogance. And so, how does this play out in Isaiah's historical time? How does the judgment of Babylon happen? Well, Isaiah describes it for us in verse uh, 17. In his time, what is the ultimate end of Babylon? It says, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and no delight in gold. We kind of take the mask off this mysterious army that God is mustering, and it's not the nation of Israel. It's just some other profane nation, if you will. It's a non-believing nation that God uses as an instrument to bring judgment upon this nation. It's the Medes. And we know through history that the Medes, in alliance with the Persians, eventually overthrow the empire of Babylon. And so he's stirring up the Medes against them, and they have no regard for silver. They do not delight in gold. Their currency is bloodshed, if you will. They, they don't want money. They cannot be bought off. They cannot be held off with earthly possessions. They are simply coming to kill and what happens in verse 18? We read on, the, their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. And their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. He won't even have a camping ground left, if you will. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there, but wild animals will lie down there. And their houses will be full of howling creatures. Ostriches will dwell there. It's kind of strange. And their wild goats will dance. Verse 22, hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. And so if Babylon, for us, is an example of God's ultimate judgment, then we should be very concerned at this point because we know looking back, you know, 2,500 years away from the writing of this, 
25 years, 2,500 years in the future, if you will, looking back, we know that this is a settled historical fact, that Babylon was overthrown, and its archaeology and its ruins weren't even uncovered until the 19th and the 20th century. That's how completely overthrown the capital of Babylon was. And so, when we're confronted with the seriousness of this judgment, the leveling of this kingdom, we should learn how much more will God's judgment upon the whole world be. And so our fourth point today is that God's day of judgment is a fixed certainty. And that should make us really take the idea of coming judgment to heart. And it should sober us up the truth of this kind of prospect in our future. And so if this day was certain and it was proved, how should we consider, how much more should we consider God's final day of judgment on this world? God has something certain to say about this in historical Babylon in verse 22. We know that its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. So God had a fixed date on the calendar that said the day after this day, Babylon will be no more. The kingdom that was built up and it was made of many different kingdoms uniting together, and it almost seemed like, well, this is the entire world power. Who can ever beat Babylon? Well, the next day, if you will, God will bring complete destruction, and it won't even be recognizable as an empire. And so if God was able to do this with a lesser, if you will, lesser world power attacking it, then how much more will God be able to accomplish total and complete judgment in this world? And so this passage reminds us that judgment is not not only an Old Testament thing, but a thing we should be thinking about for our own future. We, when we, often we say, oh, you know what, this happened and this happened in Bible times, we refer to the past, but we should recognize that we are still in Bible times and we are still expecting a day of judgment to come from the Lord. And so we should really kind of consider that But, at the same time, how do we even respond to a message like this? If God, if all God had for us was just, okay, by the way, this judgment is coming, what is our only choice? If our only choice is simply judgment, then our reaction would simply be the same as um, we see described in verses 6-8, through eight, we're, we're wailing, we're, we're, we're feeling sick to our stomachs, our faces are a pl- flame of embarrassment. And so what kind of reaction do we have to this? Oh, do better? No, we're going to be crippled with absolute fear, it's debilitating. But we should remember, in this case, one word we use and we use often, and that is salvation. That salvation is not just the opposite of judgment. We often think, you know, we have salvation. We're not going to go to hell. It's almost like a, uh, a ticket, if you will, to get into the, the correct room rather than the door number two that leads to hell. But we should really think about it a little bit more than that. And when we have God's salvation, we learn that God's judgment to us who are being saved is actually God's deliverance for us. And when I say salvation, I mean specifically the salvation that Christ came to this earth, bought, 
with his own blood. And today he's offering it to you very freely if you'll simply believe on him, if you'll simply have faith in him that he can save you through this day of punishment, through this day of tribulation. And so when we have that kind of assurance, when we're believing and we're trusting in Christ, we can have no fear of the coming judgment of God. And in fact, we can even learn that the judgment of God that's coming to this world is actually God's good plan for redemption. And you might say, Jared, you're good, and you're talking about salvation, and that's good, and I'm glad you are, instead of you know, ending on a piece of judgment. But how is God's judgment upon this world good news for us? Well, it comes down to a, thi- a few things we've already learned about God's wrath and God's judgment. And that God's judgment, number one, destroys the work of his enemies. You know who was behind the Tower of Babel, the, the historical nation and empire of Babylon, and the future great Babylon that the world will develop? Really, it was the work of the devil. It was the work of Satan, bringing these kingdoms up in defiance and opposition against God. And so when God destroys the world, he's destroying the work of the devil, and he's destroying his enemies. And that's good news for us. That's good news for you, and that's good news for me, because with the destruction of Satan, there'll be no more sin in the world. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more hardship or tears. And so that's how it can be good news. Number two, we should learn that God delivers His people through judgment. When we're delivered and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we're released from the captivity of Satan himself. We're, we're released from being a citizen, if you will, of Babylon and the ugliness and the oppression and the pride to being thrust into and made a citizen of God's kingdom. And so, when we think... when. When I say, though, that we're being delivered through judgment, I really do mean that we're delivered by the judgment of God. And you say, well, well, how does that work? Well, look in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31. We learn about uh, the uh, scenario of the the last days and what what the end of the world is going to look like. And we see immediately... After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Sound familiar? The kind of end of days kind of scenario. The stars will fall down from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. But then look, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and he will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so this time of coming judgment is also a time of great deliverance, where God is going to gather us outside of the end of the world, if you will, gather us away from his coming wrath, so that we're not heirs of wrath. We don't have wrath coming to us as an inheritance, but we have God's blessing if we believe in Him. And so our third point we should know for us today is that Jesus today calls you out of a world headed for judgment. When is the day of salvation? The day of judgment? Not necessarily, but actually today. Today is when God calls people unto Himself. In Revelation Chapter 18, verse, po- verse um, 
4, we, we're talking about again about the city of Babylon and how it's being destroyed. And the call for us, the call that we should take to heart, is come out of her, my people, lest you take part of her sins and you share in her plagues. And so what's the story of God's judgment? What's the lesson we should take is that we should be coming out of the world, coming out of sin, coming out of a lifestyle that's not pleasing to the Lord, and coming into faith and taking His Son up on His offer of eternal life. And so, if you haven't done that, or maybe if you are kind of worried and and concerned and maybe not so assured about this coming day of judgment, we do actually have prayer coming um, in the, the, the next song we're going to do. So just consider that. But also, just remember that Christ is our great hope under all circumstances, even in the coming universal, terrifying judgment. So, with that, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. Even though it is a hard word, and Lord, these things might be difficult to read, they might be difficult to think about, but Lord, let us examine ourselves and see whether we are truly Your people. And that, Lord, if there's anyone among us that says they don't have the insurance, they don't have the salvation that comes from Christ that will deliver them in those kind of days, that will deliver them from hell, we ask that, Lord, You would convict them and that they would come to know Your Son, Christ, who reaches out to them with open arms. And so we thank You again for Your Word, and we ask that, Lord, You would be glorified by our lives even today. In Jesus' name, Amen.